Well, greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament systematic theology at Colorado Christian University. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. It's been a long time since I've done a standalone podcast where I've come in and recorded something that's not related to my Sunday morning sermons or my Wednesday night adult Bible studies, but I've been uh, reading a book that I never had read before. Um, I've read Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, very familiar with that, but I never read Calvin's The Eternal Predestination of God. This is where he actually goes into great detail defending the doctrine of predestination. And as I was studying this book, and actually as I was preparing to teach uh, a, a Monday morning men's Bible study. I do a Monday morning men's Bible study at 6 a.m. in the morning every week, and we're, we just finished up 2 Thessalonians, but I was going through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and came across a passage of Scripture that clearly teaches the doctrine of predestination unto salvation, and as I was doing study for that and reading Calvin and also coming across a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, I thought, man, this would be a great opportunity to put all these thoughts together into a podcast. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to specifically deal with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And I want to read this from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. Normally, I use the English Standard Version. And the reason I'm going to read from the New American Standard, I'm going to explain that in just a moment, because there is what's called a textual variant in verse 13 that can give a, a nuance of meaning to this passage of Scripture. And I've heard provisionists like Leighton Flowers argue for one understanding of this textual variant, and I'm going to explain why I don't take that view. And so let's just dive in to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, reading from the New American Standard. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just set some context here for just a moment. Um, in chapter 2, Paul has been teaching about the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist. He's been talking about the second coming of Christ, judgment on unbelievers. It's been some pretty heavy material that Paul's been dealing with. And then he shifts gears to give believers a reason to have hope that we will escape judgment on the final day. And that hope is the doctrine of election, of predestination, of God's choosing. Now, in that passage of Scripture, verse 13, there is a textual variant. Now, what do I mean by a textual variant? The original manuscripts of the New Testament we do not have. And so there were copies on scrolls that scribes would do, and there's probably over 47,000 copies that we have, ancient copies of the New Testament. Um, but as you, you look at these copies, there, there may be a little bit difference 
in a particular word. And, and let me just give you a little bit of, um, of clarification here. Out of all the textual variants that you have in the New Testament, 99% of them do not affect doctrine or theology or things like that. It's more just maybe a spelling of a word. And so um, one ancient set of texts has the word first fruits for salvation. First fruits, it's, it's one word. Another set of documents divides that word up and it puts a prefix in front of it. I'm not going to get into all the Greek, but it has from the beginning. So one text has one Greek word that's all together that's, that reads first fruits. Another ancient set of texts has two separate words, which is translated from the beginning. And so I think that a better understanding of this passage of scripture is from the beginning. Now, now why do I take it from the beginning? I take it as from the beginning as opposed to first fruits because of other passages of scripture, especially that Paul teaches, that talk about God's election or predestination that happened before the foundation of the world. So let's just look at this passage of scripture because a lot of times I hear provisionists and others say, God never elects anyone to salvation. There's predestination to service. There's predestination in choosing of nations. There's a choosing of a person to carry the noble cause. There's corporate election where God chooses the group, the set. But there's, there's no passage of scripture that actually teaches that God chooses people for individual salvation. Well, let's just look at this passage of scripture because it says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Now, why should we give thanks? And Paul gives the answer, because. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. There it is. Now, God is the primary actor here. He's the subject God. The verb has chosen. Direct object, you. When? From the beginning. For what? Salvation. Very clear. And Paul uses a word here for choose. It's somewhat unique to Paul, and it's not really used in other places in Paul's writing. It, it can literally mean God took pleasure in choosing or taking to himself. It, it's stronger than God merely choosing, but it carries the idea that God chose with good pleasure or that God took great delight in this choice. Now, in the ancient Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is it's helpful because this is the Bible that Paul used. And so the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, will translate Old Testament words into Greek. And this word choose that Paul uses here shows up in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 18. Um, here is the way that the, the ESV translates Deuteronomy 26, 18. The Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you are to keep his commandments. So the, the Hebrew there, that the way the ESV translates it, is treasured possession. And, and that, that language is all throughout the Old Testament in God choosing Israel to be a special treasured possession. But listen to how the Greek Septuagint translates Deuteronomy 26, 18. It says, The Lord has selected you today to be a special people to him, just as he said to keep his commands. 
So the, the Septuagint translates that treasured possession in has selected or has chosen you. And that's the same Greek word that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, that God has selected you with great care and great compassion as his treasured possession. And notice, God chose you from the beginning for salvation, to be saved. This is a clear passage on God's choosing individuals for salvation. Now, we have to ask the question, what does the word from the beginning mean? Now remember, I take that textual variant to mean from the beginning as opposed to the first fruits. I take this to mean from the beginning, and most commentators do as well, because it is a parallel passage to what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Notice here in the Ephesians passage that it's the same structure. God chose, it's a different Greek word, but the same concept. God chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says. What does Paul say in Thessalonians? God chose you from the beginning. So you take that idea that before the world was created, before the beginning of time, God made his choice. And we see this in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, talking about the mark of the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, there are those that take the other textual variants to be the first fruits. I've heard Leighton Flowers, a provisionist, a leading provisionist, say that all Paul is saying there, he's not talking about God choosing people for salvation before the foundation of the world. He's just saying that the word first fruits means that the Thessalonians were the first ones to believe in Macedonia. It doesn't mean before the foundation of the world, it just means that from the beginning of Paul's ministry, these were the first fruits of who believed. Now, here's the point. The Thessalonians were not the first to believe in Macedonia. As a matter of fact, it was the Philippians. If you remember, Paul has the vision of the man from Macedonia that says, come over, and then the first place Paul goes is Philippi. And he goes down to the river, and there's Lydia and those ladies, and then the Lord opens her heart, and then you have the Philippian jailer, and then the church is birthed in the Philippian, in, in, in Philippi. So literally, historically, the Philippians were the first fruits to believe in Macedonia, not the Thessalonians. So it doesn't make sense to say that all Paul's saying is that the Thessalonians were the first to believe. Most commentators see this as a reference to the fact that from the beginning, before the foundation of the world, God's purpose was to save the elect, to choose his people. Now, it's very important that we read this passage of Scripture because God made his choice of individuals for salvation. That happened before time. But here's the second question. How does this work itself out in time? How does a person actually receive salvation? I hear many people mistake Calvinism by saying that 
God just elects people and they never know if they're going to be saved and, and, and they can go their whole life and never know if they were elect and that um, basically, you, you know, you, you can walk through life and never know you're one of the chosen. That's not what we, at least I believe, that the Bible teaches. That's not what any Reformed person I know believes. We are elect unto salvation. Very clear distinction there. God has chosen us for salvation, but just because God chose us for salvation does not mean we're automatically saved. There has to come a point in time where we actually are saved. And how does God do that? Well, you look at the passage of Scripture. Through. Okay, God chose you from the beginning for salvation. Okay, how did this work itself out? Through, and then Paul lists two things here. This is back in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. God chose you through, number one, sanctification by the Spirit, and number two, faith in the truth. Okay, so sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, let's ask a question. Why is sanctification in the Spirit listed first in order before belief or faith? How come faith is not listed first? Now, some may say, well, the Paul's just giving a list here, and, and it doesn't really matter what order he puts them in. No, I believe every single word is inspired of the Holy Spirit and has a purpose, and that the order of how Paul words things makes sense theologically. Some people think, a synergist, an Arminian, a provisionist, think that you have the libertarian free will to believe first. And then when you believe, you're thus regenerated or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Faith comes first, regeneration comes second. You have the libertarian free will to choose Christ, and then based upon your choosing, you are regenerated. So regeneration comes after faith. But why does Paul list sanctified by the Spirit first before faith? What does it mean to be sanctified by the Spirit? Well, that means to be set apart as holy. This refers to an internal cleansing or a change inwardly that makes you go from being dead in sin, unclean, depraved, to being alive in Christ, made alive. So this is really talking about regeneration a cleansing, a work of the Holy Spirit, something that the Holy Spirit does internally that then results in you placing your faith. Now, let's go back to verse 14, because verse 14 continues Paul's discussion. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, here you have in verse 14, calling. Okay, so in these two passages of Scripture, you have God's choosing, you have sanctification by the Holy Spirit, you have faith, and you have calling. So how do all of these theological truths work together? Okay, so that's the question. This, our salvation, our being set apart by the Spirit, it came through the calling of the gospel. Now, here's the question. Was this merely an external call that can be rejected or resisted? Or was it an effectual call that actually resulted in faith? 
because the source of all of this was God's predestinating choice. So let's talk about the order here. And we can see the order here in the Second Thessalonians passage, and we can also see the order in other places in Paul. But let's just, let's just give the order, theological order here. Before time, before the foundation of the world, God chose sinners for salvation to be saved. At a point in time, the gospel was preached to you in the general call. The gospel went out. You heard a, a sermon. You may have had somebody share the gospel with you. Your parents shared the gospel with you. You listened to the radio. You went to a Billy Graham crusade. So, some, somehow you heard the outward general call of the gospel. But the Holy Spirit internally and effectually called you, sanctified you. Why? Because you were chosen. And he did that so that you would believe. So when the Spirit called you through the gospel, externally, he also did an inward change in you internally, effectually. What does Paul say he did? Sanctified you. What does that mean? He cleansed you. In the Bible, we have different metaphors for this action by the Holy Spirit. For example, in Ezekiel 36, 26-27, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God takes out a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh by putting in the Holy Spirit. It's an internal transformation, cleansing, sovereign work of God who does this. God takes out your old, dead, stony heart and replaces it with a new heart. We also see this in Philippi when Acts, when, when, in Acts 16, 14, when Paul does go down to the river. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is just another way of saying sanctification by the Holy Spirit, internal cleansing, regeneration, effectual calling. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord is the one that did it. She didn't open her heart. God opened her heart. And then Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Who makes whom alive? Do you make yourself alive or does God make us alive? This is Paul's definition of grace in Ephesians chapter 2. God takes those who are spiritually dead and makes them alive. So the Spirit gives life. The Spirit causes us to be born again. The Spirit makes us a new creation. We are sanctified through the Spirit. We're given a heart of flesh. Our heart of stone's taken out. We are, our heart is opened. We're made alive. And so regeneration comes before faith. And that's the order that Paul puts it there in verse 13. He puts sanctification by the Spirit first, and then he puts faith. And so you don't believe first and then get born again. You are regenerated or born again first, and then the first thing you do is you believe. God has changed your will that was in bondage to give you the gift of faith. And so here's the point. Once you're sanctified by the Spirit, i.e. cleansed, regenerated, called, you then believe in the truth. So there is believing. So you are chosen for salvation, 
You are at a point in time sanctified by the Spirit, and that results in your believing. And that all comes about through God's call. So here's the question, why did you believe? Why did you personally have faith? And the answer Paul gives is because you were chosen for salvation. Because you were called by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit supernaturally worked in your heart to give you the gift of faith. You were sanctified by the Spirit. We see in Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. They were appointed to eternal life, they believed. Why is the reason that they believed? The Gentiles, when they heard the gospel, why did they believe? Well, it's because they were already appointed to eternal life. They were already chosen before the foundation of the world to believe. In other words, faith is the fruit of our election, not the other way around. God is the one who chose us, who appointed us before the foundation of the world to be saved. And then at a point in time, we actually believed. And why do we believe? Because God chose us to believe. God called us, and that calling was effectual in the sense that the Holy Spirit sanctified us or cleansed us or regenerated us. So again, what's the order? First, God sovereignly chose you to be saved. Second, the gospel was outwardly presented or preached to you so that you could hear it and understand the truth. Third, the Holy Spirit did an internal and effectual calling that actually brought life, that brought regeneration, that changed you, that freed your will. And then fourth, you personally believed in Jesus. You had faith in the truth because you were given the gift of faith. So even the faith that you had to place in Christ was not your own. It was a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Even the faith that you personally exercise to believe in Jesus, yes, you must personally believe in Jesus. I'm not afraid to use the, the terminology, you must choose. As a Calvinist, as a Reformed theologian, I don't have problems with that because I understand the reason why you choose the undergirding, why you choose. The reason you choose is because, number one, God chose you. Number two, God called you. Number three, the Holy Spirit regenerated you. And God sovereignly gave you the gift of faith to choose or to believe. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted for you to believe. Now, I've heard provisionists say that what Paul's saying is that merely God merely grants the opportunity for you to believe. He gives you an opportunity when you hear the gospel to believe. You can choose to believe. You can choose not to believe. It's more granting an opportunity. But that passage of scripture says nothing about an opportunity. What is actually granted is the faith. What's actually granted is the belief. Faith is the supernatural gift God gives to his elect through sanctification by the Spirit. So let's go back to that passage of Scripture again, and let's just read it. 2 Thessalonians, what does Paul say? We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Okay, before time, God chose you for salvation. How did this work itself out in time? Through what's listed first? Sanctification by the Spirit. That is regeneration. That's the internal cleansing. That's being made alive. And faith in the truth. Okay, what comes first? 
Faith in the truth or sanctification by the Spirit? Paul lists sanctification by the Spirit first, which results in faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel. So there's the gospel call, the external call, which actually becomes effectual to the elect in the internal call, so that those whom God has chosen will in fact come to faith. Now, let's go to Calvin. What does Calvin have to say about this in his, in, in his work, The Eternal Doctrine of Predestination, or the Eternal Predestination of God? What does Calvin say about this passage of Scripture? I think it's very um, helpful. So here's what Calvin says, quote, If then, amidst so universal a corruption and depravity of our nature, some few do believe the gospel, to ascribe the faith of such to their own goodness would be perfectly impious. No. Let thanks on the contrary be given to God continually because he has from the beginning chosen such believers unto salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, in which words the apostle traces to faith and sanctification to the external selection or election of God as its source and cause. What shall we say then? We were ch- that we here's what shall we say then? Were these chosen because they sanctified themselves and rendered themselves worthy to be chosen? So Calvin is saying the reason that these believers do in fact trust in Christ is because the source and cause of this is election. The source and cause of their believing is election, and it works itself out in time through that sanctification by the Spirit. Now, let me just give an objection here that a provisionist will argue. Provisionists will say, well, obviously no sinner can make themselves worthy to be chosen. We don't believe in salvation by works. That's a straw man. We don't believe we can make ourselves worthy. But, a provisionist will say, a sinner does retain the ability to choose to receive the offer of the gospel when that is presented to them. The gospel appeal is given to a non-believer and they have nothing within them hindering them from making a libertarian free will choice. They're not born totally unable to respond to God's appeal to be saved. There's no spiritual inability from birth. There's no enslavement to sin that makes a sinner unable or unwilling to trust in Christ once they hear the gospel appeal. The gospel appeal is the grace needed to generate a response. Now, we have to ask a question. If a sinner hears the gospel and uses libertarian free will to choose, did not that sinner contribute something to salvation? The provisionists will say, wait, wait a minute, no, 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 no. Accepting a gift is not a work. There's no merit in accepting a gift. Just reaching out and accepting a gift is not a work. And they would say it's God's sovereign will to give us the ability to choose. We God sovereignly gives us the ability to accept or reject the work, or accept or reject the gift of salvation. So let's ask a question. Is faith itself a gift of sovereign grace that God actually grants to sinners? Or is faith something we produce unaided by any internal compulsion or change or regeneration? 
In other words, the provisionist is going to say that we can, within ourselves, because God set it up that way, make the libertarian free will choice to choose positively when the gospel appeal is given. There's no need for regeneration. There's no need for an internal change. That change happens subsequent to your faith. You contribute the faith, then God regenerates you. Now, what I want to do is I want to teach something that a lot of times I don't hear provisionists or Arminians or non-Calvinists really address, and that is something that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1-7. through Now, there's a context to 1 Corinthians 4. Paul is talking about his ministry as a, an apostle, how he has come and not done things in underhanded ways. He's been upfront and honest. He's not like the super apostles that were coming and trying to trick the people. And so let me just read this in context, but I really want to focus in on verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So listen to what Paul says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Okay, Paul's basically saying, listen, we're coming with pure motives. We want to be faithful stewards. Don't put either Paul or Apollos or I up on a pedestal. Don't complain against our teaching. God's going to sort everything out in the end. You guys need to stop pronouncing judgments. God is the one who will judge. We've been faithful stewards. We're, we're coming to you as those apostles of the Lord. Now, verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? And here it is. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? John the Baptist says in John chapter 3, a person cannot even receive one thing unless it's given to him from above. What do you have that you did not receive? Now, as I was thinking about this, I was drawn to a sermon by Spurgeon. This is where it's all coming together with Calvin and Spurgeon and this men's Bible study. Spurgeon preached a sermon called Distinguishing Grace, and it's from 1 Corinthians 4-7. And I want to just read Spurgeon's words because I think it's a wonderful passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 4-7, and I think that Spurgeon does a great job of unpacking it. So this is going to be a long quote, but I think it's important to hear from Spurgeon. Okay, here's, here's where it begins. This is not the whole sermon, but a portion. Who maketh thee to differ from one another? This question should be like a dagger put to the throat of our boasting. And what trust thou that thou did not receive? It would be like a sword thrust through the heart of our self-exaltation and pride. Yet what makes us to differ? Why is it that I this day am not sitting down 
a callous hearer, hardened under the gospel? Why am I not at this very hour hearing the word with my outward ear, but rejecting it in my inward heart? Why is it that I have not been suffered to reject the invitation of Christ to despise his grace? To go on Sunday after Sunday hearing the word and yet being like the deaf adder to it. Oh, have I made myself to differ? God forbid that such a proud, blaspheming thought should defile our hearts. The only reason, my brother, why thou art at this time an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ, a partaker of sweet fellowship with Jesus, an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, is because he hath made thee to differ. That was an heir to wrath, even as others, born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Therefore, must you give all the glory to his holy name and cry, not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name be the praise. Even this one, though when fully masticated and digested, might feed up our gratitude and make us humbly bow before the footstool of God's throne with joyful thanksgiving. Why am I not this day among the most hardened of men? How is it that my heart is melted so that I can weep at the recollection of my Redeemer's suffering? Why is it that my conscience is tender and that I am led to self-examination by a searching sermon? How is it that I know how to pray and to groan before God on account of my sin? What has brought the water from these eyes but the self-same power which brought the water from the rock? And what has put life into my heart but the self-same omnipotence which scattered manna in a hungry desert? Our hearts had still been like the wild beasts of the forest if it had not been for divine grace. Oh, I beseech you, my dear friend. Every time you see a hardened sinner, just say within yourself, there's the picture of what I should have been, what I must have been if all-subduing, all-conquering love had not melted and sanctified my heart. Take these two cases then, and you have, heaven knows, reason enough to sing praises of sovereign grace. Allow me one more contrast. Once again, let your gratitude go with me since you and I have joined the church. How many who were once companions have been damned whilst we have been saved. How many who were no worse than we were by nature have sunk into the lowest pit of hell. Conceive their unutterable torments. Imagine their inconceivable woes. Depict before the eyes of your fancy their indescribable agonies. Descend in spirit for a moment to the gates of fire. Enter into the abode of despair where justice reigns supreme on her iron throne. Pass by the dreary cell of those who are everlastingly damned. Behold the twisting of that worm that never dies and the bleeding hearts that are crushed within its coils. Look you at that flame unquenchable and behold the souls that are sweltering there in torments to us unknown. And look if you can look, but you cannot look. For your eyes would be stricken with blindness if you could see their torments. Your hair would be blanched with but a moment of that horrible exhibition. Ah, while you stand then and think of that region of death, despair, and damnation, recollect that you would have been there if it had not been for sovereign grace. You have a harp prepared for you in heaven, a crown laid up for you when you finished your course. You have a mansion, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Oh, why is it that you, why is it that you're not ready already, a fiend? Who is it that has given you good hope through grace that you shall never come into that place of torment? Oh, tell it to the wide world over. Tell it in time and eternity. Free grace has done it. 
free grace has done it from first to last. I was a brand in the fire, but he plucked me from the burning, quenched me in his blood, and now he declares I shall be with him forever in heaven. But oh, pause, brethren, and think that some of your former companions, some of the companions of your revelry and debaucheries are now in hell, and you're not there. And by the grace of God, never will be there. Oh, why is this? Why is this? Blessed be the Lord, my God, from this time and forever. Praise ye his name. Grace has done it, and grace has done it all. You can sense the passion of Charles Spurgeon, and you can imagine the people in his congregation. I think they would be weeping with so much joy that they're not in hell. And the only reason is because God sovereignly chose them and saved them and called them and sanctified them. And it's the same with you and me. We contribute nothing to our salvation, even faith. God, sovereign grace, must do it all from first to last. It's all of grace. God chose us from the beginning. God sanctified us by the Spirit. God internally and effectually called, him to, called us to himself. God gave us the gift of faith. And the reason that it's all of God is so that when we step foot into heaven, we will not boast that we contributed anything, even faith. Everything is a gift of God. Now, Let's go back to that 2 Thessalonians passage of Scripture. Because someone in my men's Bible study asked the $10 million question. They basically said, well, if God's got it all figured out, and God's predestined everybody one way or the other, then what's the purpose of the Great Commission? Why do we do missions? Why do we do evangelism? Why do we pray? If God's got it all figured out, if God's predestined everything, then, then why even pray? Why do evangelism? Well, thankfully, Paul answers that question. As you keep reading 2 Thessalonians, he answers that question. So Paul is going to address how evangelism and prayer relate to God's sovereign choice. Okay, so Paul has just told us that God has chosen us for salvation. God has done it in his sovereign grace through sanctification in the Spirit and through the calling. God has done it. And as you go into chapter 3, let's read what Paul says right on the heels of talking about sovereign election. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard your hearts against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you're doing the will, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Paul commands them to pray Pray for the advancement of the gospel. Pray that the word would speed ahead. Pray for evangelism. Pray that the door would be open. And so here's a question. 
how can sovereign election be a motivation and an encouragement for us to pray for evangelistic success? Well, think about it this way. The only hope for lost humanity is that God has chosen sinners and will work in their hearts so that they will believe. So Paul wants the message or the gospel to spread or move forward or advance. Who's the only one who can do that effectively? Who's the only one that can save sinners? When we're praying for the gospel to go forward, what are we asking God to do? We're asking God to do that work. We're asking God to do that sanctification by the Spirit. We're asking God to do that calling. We're asking God to open blind eyes, to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, to make people alive. Why pray if God can't do those things? We pray with the confidence that God is the only one that can do those things. And so here's the point. God's electing power and the Spirit's work actually guarantee the victory of the gospel. There will be guaranteed victory because of sovereign election and because of the Spirit's effectual call. Now, Paul prays that the word would speed ahead. Takes the image of, of an Olympic runner who wins the race. And in this case, the gospel is the, is the runner. It's running victoriously ahead, ahead of Paul. It's claiming victory over people's hearts. It's claiming victory over false religion and idolatry. And so we pray for the gospel to speed ahead because only God can win the victory through his power in saving sinners. So what's this motivation to pray for the unsaved and for the advancement of the gospel? Well, number one, God commands it. Paul says, pray for us, pray for the advancement of the gospel. That should be enough. But also, unbelievers' only hope is if God has elected them. And we pray with the knowledge that sure victory is in the process of happening as God speeds forth his gospel into the hearts of his elect. So prayer is the means by which God saves sinners. Paul even prays for boldness in Ephesians 6. In Colossians 4, he prays for clarity. We should be praying for boldness in the gospel, clarity. And notice what Paul says here, that the word would be honored. It would be accepted, just like the Thessalonians accepted it. What does Paul say there? Read it again. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. In other words, the word came to you, Thessalonians, and you honored it. Okay, so let's ask the question. Why did the Thessalonians honor the Lord's word when it came to them? Is it because they were spiritually sensitive? Is it because they were smarter? Is it because they um, just used their libertarian free will? Why was the word honored to the Thessalonians? Well, we don't have to guess. We can go back and read 1 Thessalonians chapter four, or chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Okay, there's Paul's wording again. In 1 Thessalonians, God has chosen you. Okay, how, how do we know, Paul, that God chose them. Verse five, because, here's the reason, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Why were they chosen? 
because God sovereignly elected them to be chosen. But how do we know that they receive the message with joy and with power and with the Holy Spirit? Well, it was because God had chosen them. And because God chose them, when the gospel came to them, there was the effectual, powerful working of the Holy Spirit to bring that word alive in their hearts and to grant them faith. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really was, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. They received the word of God with conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the gospel call came to them outwardly through Paul's preaching. And they accepted it. They accepted the gospel. They trusted in Jesus. Why? Because that Holy Spirit took that gospel call and did an internal sanctification, a cleansing. And that cleansing and that sanctification, that regeneration resulted in their trusting or having faith. And why did all this happen? because God chose them for salvation from the beginning. So in Thessalonians, Paul, oftentimes we go to Ephesians, we go to Romans, we go to John 6, we go to all these other places to, to talk about the doctrine of election, and those are very important places to go, but I find it interesting that in First and Second Thessalonians, Paul teaches very clearly some key doctrines, the doctrine of sovereign election before time, the doctrine of the internal effectual call of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of sanctification by the Spirit through regeneration, and then personal faith in Christ as a result of all that. So what's the source of our faith? It's in the doctrine of predestination. And so we need to look at how the scriptures clearly word things, the order that Paul gives them, and from the order and the wording and the grammar and the syntax, that's why we do exposition. That's why we, we take great pains to understand the text because we don't just come with our theology and say, hey, I'm a Calvinist because it's a cool thing to do, or it's because I read John Calvin, or it's because of R.C. Sproul, or this or that. No, our theology emerges directly from the text. And so when we exposit or exegete or uncover the text in its original context and meaning and grammar, that's where our theology emerges. And so the reason why I'm a Calvinist, the reason why I'm Reformed is not because it's the cool thing to do. It's because I believe it's what the text teaches. And I want to be faithful to the text of Scripture, not necessarily a system of theology. Well, I appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity today. It's been a, a great opportunity to, to share with you. Again, if you have any questions or you have comments or anything you want to do, you can contact me on uh, seancole.net. My contact information is there. You can go to my personal Facebook page and, and ask to become a friend. Um, on my Facebook page feed, uh, we do have our sermons, uh, sermon video on Facebook Live where you can watch the sermons um, and things like that. So we really appreciate the support that we get from our listeners. Again, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity.